their brother. They were married in the United States, but they were in Argentina for many years, and uh, they're currently living in the United States, too. They have, you, you know, this is in here. They currently have 19 grandchildren, four of which are married and have given them six great-grandchildren. And he's uh, now serves as a pastor of the Miami Christian Community Church, where he leads a school of ministry and president of the Woods, Words of the World Incorporated. Dr. Swindoll has authored three books in English and five in Spanish. He's part of a team that was instrumental in starting over 1,200 churches in South America with no divorces and no remarriages in them. One of the fastest growing renewal movements in all of South America. And he's been involved with a team of ministers based in Argentina and now in several Latin American countries that provide oversight to many churches and Christian workers in several nations. He continues to travel widely in ministry and is also engaged in writing, editing, and book layout for several Hispanic publishers. We're just glad to have him here today. It says there, I need, oh, okay. I've got to give this back to somebody. Uh, see, you've got to be careful what you read when you read it the first time. Dr. Swindoll, come. Let's just welcome him today. God bless you. Yes, yes. Amen. I am so glad to be here today. And I'm glad to get my voice back. I had such an intense round of ministry in New England last weekend. Got back home to Miami on Monday, and I had almost no voice at all. This morning, I woke up in better condition. I'm glad that, for that. Some of you may not know where Argentina is or very much about it. Let me give you just a few bits of information before we start. When I first heard of Argentina, I didn't know where to find it on the map. But uh, it's a great country, uh, the farthest south in South America. The southernmost city in the world is in Argentina, Ushuaia. It's a country of 36, 37 million people. Buenos Aires is one of the larger cities in the world. Greater Buenos Aires has something like 14 million people. The capital city itself is about 3 million. And that's a rather fixed population because uh, on one side is the ocean and the river plate, and then on the rest of it is the other suburban areas. The suburban areas have another 10 million or so. Um, so it's really a huge city. When I first saw Buenos Aires, I thought, this is the last place I want to live in the world. And it was the last place we lived in Argentina and for the longest period of time. We have been involved for many years after I moved to Buenos Aires in 67. We've been, we, were, we spent a total of 32 years in Argentina, going there in 1959 until 91 when we moved to Miami for strategic reasons. People asked me if I was retiring. I said, I don't think so. I, I don't know how to retire. Uh, we're just going to continue to serve the Lord. <clears throat> we were involved in... Uh, what is known generically as the Christian community in Argentina, Comunidad Cristiana. Uh, but there are actually a lot of different uh, corporations and various uh, Christian groups working under that generic name. That's the name by which most people know us. We were called earlier on the spiritual renewal movement and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that today. In our congregations, there's been a great emphasis upon the lordship of Jesus Christ, upon worship, upon the 
importance of being led by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have a very strong conviction about the unity of the church, which means that in our hearts we have set aside sectarianism and accept people as our brothers in Christ. If they acknowledge Jesus Christ as their Lord and God as their Father, we consider them our brothers for all eternity. Um, much of our emphasis in ministry has been on teaching the Bible. We have some wonderful Christian Bible teachers among us. And almost all of our congregations have plural pastors. Because we learned many years ago that uh, trying to play it alone is a, is a very dangerous business. So we learned that we need to walk together and work in teams. Um, we have fortunately, a good relationship with most of the Christian groups in the country. I'm not aware at this point of any uh, significant outstanding conflict with any of the other Christian groups. That does not mean we're all in agreement, but we've learned to love each other and work together as much as we can in spite of whatever disagreements there are. Argentina is a largely Roman Catholic country. Um, some 90% plus of the population would call themselves Roman Catholic, although by more specific standards, there's probably no more than 8% that would consider themselves practicing Catholics. And, and if you ask what the definition of a practi uh, practicing Catholic is, uh, they will tell you that means they go to Mass at least once a year, uh, confess to the priest at least once a year. And that means they usually are there for their uh, wedding and for their death. And it doesn't mean very much more than that for most of them. Um, there are various ideas about the statistics of the evangelical community in the country. Uh, it runs anywhere between 7 and 10% would be Protestant or Evangelical, and that's the whole gamut of um, people who call themselves Christians that are not Roman Catholics. <clears throat> In early 1967, a group of Christians from varied denominational backgrounds began meeting on Monday nights in the home of a businessman in the stately old residential area of Coglan in the city of Buenos Aires, Argentina. Our purpose was to seek the Lord for a spiritual breakthrough in our lives and in our churches throughout the city. Most of, us who, most of those of us who attended initially were a Plymouth Brethren background known as Christian Brethren in Argentina, but there were also Christians from other groups such as Baptist, Mennonite, Evangelical Union, Independent Holiness Groups, Christian and Missionary Alliance, and an occasional Presbyterian and Methodist. Within a few months, we experienced quite a turnaround and many in the group were filled with the Holy Spirit, manifested in joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. After a year, we had to move to a larger hall in downtown Buenos Aires to accommodate the hundreds who were attending by then. At some point in that first year, those of us who were pastors in attendance although without any formal or organizational relationship between us, felt that we needed to start meeting just the pastors 
once a week to try to get a handle on what the Lord was doing among us for things were mushrooming around us. Thus we began meeting on Saturday mornings following a lively discussion in time of prayer together, we always had lunch together in the home that hosted the meeting, which changed from week to week. Those pastors' meetings continued throughout the years to follow and often involved serious Bible study and reflection on a variety of theological and ecclesiastical topics. It was in the early or mid-1970s that the topic of divorce and remarriage arose in those meetings. At the time, in Argentina, divorce was legally prohibited, although there were various ways that people got around that legal restriction, such as getting divorced and remarried in a neighboring country. The Roman Catholic Church has traditionally had a firm stand on this issue, but even so, canon law was sometimes interpreted in devious ways that allowed for separation and remarriage with canonical permission. As for the evangelicals, the traditional firmness for years had begun to break down in some of the churches, in many of the churches, so that many pastors were unwilling to press the issue with couples who had been divorced and remarried and wanted to join the church. Consequently, the picture in general was something of a smorgasbord of choices. This often resulted in the older, more traditional church leaders trying to hold the line, while the younger, more liberal-minded refused to make an issue of the matter. When we began to take stock of where we were on the issue, we discovered that we were all over the map. Almost all of us had many years of experience in pastoral and evangelistic ministry in various parts of the country and from a wide background of theological tendencies. All of us saw ourselves as firmly committed to the scriptures so that we decided the time had come to do a serious study of the Bible on the issue. This took us several weeks, meeting only once a week, and involved sometimes heated discussions, and I emphasize the word heated discussions among us. Some of the pastors in the group faced serious issues with couples in their particular congregations who had irregular marriages, making the issue especially thorny for them. All of us were aware of many such cases and had frequently dealt with such problems in the course of our pastoral experience. We found that it was especially difficult to be objective in our study when we had strong emotional attachments or respect for persons who would be excluded if we swung one way or another. To avoid such emotional traumas, <clears throat> most of us had until then either avoided the topic or else expressed our personal preference without going any further with it. We were all aware that our churches could face serious conflict and even division if this topic became an open issue. Yet the more we studied the scriptures, the more we, we, we began to see clearly that we were left with few options, if indeed we purposed to be faithful to God.
Many of our discussions and differences revolved around what is known as the exception clause mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 5.32. And I quote from the New American Standard Version, and it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Unfortunately, the variety of Bible versions, which our brother Burkett has already made clear this morning, the, the variety of Bible versions available helped us little. Uh, he mentioned the English versions. In the Spanish version, it's much the same situation. As it became evident that even those who interpreted the original languages had disagreements about its meaning. The Greek word porneia, which in the translation I just referred to is uh, termed unchastity, was translated variously as infidelity, fornication, unfaithfulness, or some other sexual irregularity or deviation. Several of us read other books and documents on the subject in both English and Spanish. Catholic as well as evangelical sources were consulted, and we talked with other pastors and Bible scholars. The confusion seemed to mount as the opinions went in a variety of directions. The basic Old Testament passage that seemed to be at the bottom of our dilemma was Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, which I again read from the New American Standard, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he, he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Even the Jewish scholars over the centuries could not seem to reach agreement on the meaning of this passage. The term for indecency or uncleanness in the passage leaves much ground for discussion, to say the least. In our study and evaluation, we finally concluded that whatever the indecency or uncleanness, and here's the key point, it was involved in a subterfuge or deception on the part of the woman prior to marriage, and that this deception was interpreted as invalidating her marriage vows, sort of like uh, swearing to something, but you've got your fingers crossed behind your back. Or signing a document uh, in which you confirm something or affirm something that you know is not true and then is later found out. That gave grounds to her new husband to repudiate her because they had been married on, under false, uh, precinct, false pretense. 
I get my Spanish and English mixed up here sometimes when I'm talking. Um, in today's legal terminology, we understood this as the equivalent of an annulment of the marriage bond, which in turn validated the possibility of a proper marriage. However, we saw no biblical grounds for something like this occurring later on in marriage. Essentially, it was something that was discovered at the outset of the marriage, not later on. Um, let me say, before I go any further, that uh, we found that when a person is doing Bible study on this, it's very difficult, it's very difficult to come to any kind of a reasoned position by yourself. Um, I think the only reason we were able to finally work this out is because we were a group of ministers, all of us who had enough background in Bible study and interpretation to talk reasonably with each other, even though we came from a lot of different positions. Um, and I've come to the conclusion that if you can't stand with others on this issue, it will be almost impossible to arrive at any kind of uh, position that satisfies you. You, you. you really need to stand together with others. And I believe that's one of the very most important reasons for this gathering here today. The discussion arises anew in Jesus' ministry when the Pharisees press him on the subject of divorce in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 12. The exception clause is brought up again, and Jesus states that Moses allowed divorce because of the obstinacy of their hearts. The implication is that if the husbands had been more kind and generous, they might have continued with the marriage. In any case, his own disciples, and here's another key point, his own disciples concluded that Jesus understood marriage as a permanent bond. For their conclusion was, in Matthew 19.10, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. That's the way the disciples understood Jesus, talking about the permanence of the marriage bond. For us, the clincher was the text in Luke 16, 18, where the exception clause does not appear. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now, here we have a legal divorce, an illegal marriage, and Jesus says, you're committing adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. We concluded then that the basic text is the clearest one and provides the clearest interpretation. We understood that it is not convenient to base doctrinal positions on the absence of clarity or the likelihood of a varied interpretation. I think the only way we can arrive at a proper understanding of this is by proper exegesis and proper hermeneutics. And those matters have been at least touched upon, if not dealt with to a great extent already in this conference. Um, we're not going to arrive at any answers uh, by dealing with the way we feel about it or who's involved. 
we're going to have to go right to the scriptures, just like many have already said in this uh, conference. I suppose that the most amazing thing about our research and our reasoning together is that we all reached the same conclusion. We concluded that in spite of our emotions about the issue, the scriptures were clear enough for us to come to agreement. Clearly, this was a very important milestone for us, but only the first step in a long journey. Once we were satisfied with our conclusion, we had to face the music and a variety of tough church problems. We also were questioned by other church leaders and were called upon to explain and defend our position in different ways. Over the next several years, we were asked to participate in forums on the issue of divorce and remarriage, as well as seminars and workshops with pastors and church leaders in Argentina. Several of us prepared papers on the subject, all of which are in Spanish, unfortunately. And one of our colleagues wrote a book, which bears the same title in Spanish as Joseph Webb's book, Until Death Do Us Part. Our strong position on the value of a Christian family, building a Christian family for God's glory, has certainly recommended us to others, even when they continue to question the validity of our position on the issue referred to above. For instance, a typical commentary from other pastors or Christians in Argentina who know us all quite well is that, my, they have a wonderful position on the family. It's a shame they have such a hard idea about divorce and remarriage. Um, because basically our congregations are based upon Christian families. And uh, we've been able to lead a lot of people to the Lord as families and baptize them as families uh, together. It's been a, a marvelous experience, but a very trying time as well. I want to give you uh, at least a reference to three different cases where this sort of thing has come out and how we've dealt with it. Uh, our congregations are basically divided in Greater Buenos Aires into four areas. The capital city, where there's a very large congregation of over 2,000 that functions uh, uh, each week in, uh, I think, either eight or nine or ten different congregations and once a month altogether. Uh, we lived in the northern suburbs with another very large congregation uh, of um, 2,000 or so, and uh, th there are a number of congregations in the northern uh, suburbs. Then in, on the western side of Buenos Aires, there are two large groups, both of which would number o over 1,000, and also with several congregations functioning, and then once a month altogether. And then in the southern zone, they're more spread out. There's a, I don't know how many there, but I would, be, I would say there'd be at least a thousand there also functioning in several congregations. All of these congregations function on the basis of hundreds of house groups. Uh, our congregations have been um, based upon work in the home so that we have many, many workers uh, leading groups in their homes. The groups may number anywhere from 10 to 30 people and sometimes even more. Um, this is the place where people are one to the Lord, 
this is the place where they're being discipled, where they're being instructed, where their problems are being dealt with, and the pastors basically function to give counsel to those uh, various home groups functioning in that manner. In the western zone, uh, a man who had come to the Lord came to one of the pastors after he got into conviction. He said, I've got a very serious problem. I'm a bigamist. My wife doesn't even know that I was married before and I didn't get a divorce and I married her and we have, I think it's two or three children. So the pastor prayed with the man. We always try to be very cautious, very patient, very compassionate, but also very clear with the people. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, the man understood that he had to confess all of this, of course, to his wife, and that they could no longer live together as husband and wife. Uh, this, of course, was a very painful situation because he was responsible for her and for the children that they had between them. Um, so eventually they worked it out. It wasn't very long, but they worked it out so that he lives elsewhere. The wife and the children stayed in the home where they were until then. They continue, as far as I know, they continue to be in the same congregation. They see each other on Sundays, but they're not living together as husband and wife. In the capital, in the federal capital, another case was that of a, a woman who worked on the police force, and uh, she had just recently been married, and she was pregnant with a child when all of this came to her attention, and she realized that she was wrong. She had married a man who had been divorced, and, uh, and they, were, they had gotten married since then, and she said, I, I can't continue like this. And uh, so the pastors gave her counsel and helped her through the situation, and she broke off the marriage. Uh, quite surprisingly, uh, the, the uh, uh, pregnancy came to a stillbirth, so she, she didn't have a child, and uh, that ended in that way. Um, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, but we just try to be sensitive to the Lord and follow through with what the, the scriptures teach us. In our own northern area of Buenos Aires, there was a woman uh, from the northern part of the country who had come to the Lord years before. And this was without ever having anything to do with us. She just became convinced in reading the scriptures that uh, she was wrong in being married to a man who had who had been married before and had another wife. And uh, so she confessed it to him and said she could not continue to live with him. And she was left with raising three children on her own. She eventually moved to Buenos Aires and became a part of our congregation. I didn't even know that until several years later when she told us the story. She had been a very valiant woman and had worked very hard to raise her family. Her children are still following the Lord, just as she is, very faithful to the congregation. But it was a, a tough road to hoe, as you might say, for her. But she stood there uh, with conviction and firmness. Let me conclude with these remarks. By and large, we've developed a common pastoral practice in the hundreds of congregations under our collegial oversight. We insist upon the permanence of the marriage bond in God's sight. If someone is divorced for whatever reason, we make it clear that he or she has two options. One, either be reconciled to their legitimate spouse, or two, 
continue as a single person, that is to say, without remarrying, at least until the death of the spouse. When difficulties arise in a marriage within our communities, the pastors do all they can to help the parties involved to reach a harmonious resolution in line with the teaching of scriptures. We do not always succeed in these conflicts, but we have seen significant progress in many cases. Most of the problems uh, that arise have, do, not have to do, do not deal with how to understand the scriptures because that has become quite clear to us. The problems arise in pastoral counseling. How do you counsel people that find, them, find themselves in such unfortunate situations? We understand that the way to move forward is to be scripturally clear, compassionate in our counsel, and ministry to others who have serious marital problems, and gracious toward those who disagree with us. Persons and families who are bogged down in irregular situations are not likely to make a snap decision to straighten out their lives. I wouldn't even recommend ever a snap decision on anything so important. You've got to think it through very carefully and be sure that you're obeying God. We need to be patient, therefore, and loving with them while encouraging them to do what they know is right. For many of them, the fear is the uncertainty they face in the future without a spouse to support them, especially in the case of the women. We need to seriously consider how we can best help those who want to do what they know is right, but struggle with fear of the unknown. We try to remember, the truth is not just something we fight for. It's the foundation of our lives and our families and is best expressed in loving concern for those who have messed up their lives. May the Lord help us to honor him always. Um, on the occasion of our 50th wedding anniversary, we published a book that my wife wrote in both English and Spanish, Where He Leads, I'll Follow. I have some copies of these with me in the car if any of you are interested. The book sells about $10, but if you want it for $5, just talk to me afterwards and we'll get it to you later on. God bless you and keep you encouraged in walking with the Lord. Thank you.